Well, if you haven't been with us the last few weeks, we've been in a series called We Need to Talk, and kind of the premise underlying it is that some of the most important and some of the, sometimes some of the most heavy things in relationships are things that go unsaid, things that we should talk about but we don't. Uh, and so not every one of the talks in the series is related to dating or marriage. Uh, some of our talks are, are broader. We've got a parenting talk here coming up shortly. Uh, but this talk is specifically devoted to um, dating and marriage relationships. But, hey, if you're in this room and, and that's not the stage of life that you're in, uh, no worries, because this is going to impact your life. I'm sure it will, because what we're going to be talking about is so heavy in our culture, the idea that we're going to be challenging this morning is so heavy in our culture, I guarantee you, you've run into it, you've dealt with it, even if you're single, and you need to know uh, how to approach it. So we're going to tackle the question, uh, are we compatible? Now, I do premarital uh, classes now. We used to call it premarital coaching. Now there's such a demand for weddings here at New Spring, and, and then we actually have a lot of people who want to do premarital with us who aren't even getting married here. And so the demand for premarital coaching is so significant, we now do it in classes. Um, but there was a time when I did it one-on-one. -on -one. As a matter of fact, um, that kind of started when I first came here uh, five years ago. And I was unfamiliar with how you go about doing premarital coaching. You know, it's one of those things when you start, you just have to start by doing it. So I was a little intimidated how I was going to go about this. And my dad said, let me give you an icebreaker. Here's a good way to start off a premarital session. Of course, this was back in the days when it was just me and the couple sitting across from me. And he said, what you need to do is ask them what they're most excited about, give them an opportunity to tell you what they're looking forward to in this experience, and then ask them what they're most anxious about. And that's just a good way to break the ice and get the ball rolling. And uh, so, you know, I had that. That was my preparation, and I had kind of a curriculum of things I was going to go through with the couples. What I was not prepared for was how nervous these couples were going to be when they came in to see me. I mean, they really were a little tense. Not all of them, but most. And I remember one couple specifically. Oh, it had to be maybe one of the first five or six couples I worked with. When they came in, he looked like he thought he was getting ready to face a firing squad. I mean, he was perspiring, and his knee was just bouncing up and down, and he was all tense, and his jaw was clenched. And so I went into my spiel. I asked, so what are you most excited about in this experience? And he gave me some sort of nervous answer. And then I said, what are you most anxious about? And I'll never forget. He looked at me, eyeball to eyeball, pointed his finger at me and said, I'm scared to death. You're going to tell us that we're incompatible and we can't get married. And I thought, whoa, I have a lot of power. I didn't know that, you know, all it took was the word from me and bam, this relationship is over, you know? And I, obviously, it's not the role of a premarital coach or counselor to tell people whether or not they're compatible, but I found over and over again that that's what couples thought they were coming in to see me for. They thought they were coming in to see me to, to, so, for, so that I would somehow pronounce over them that they were either yes, a good fit, or no, not a good fit, and that was going to determine the future of where they went with this relationship. And then it kind of went to a whole new level for me because then, you know, my first four months or so here, I was only doing premarital work. And then after that first four months or so, my dad um, uh, sort of moved the responsibility of working with distressed married couples over to me. And so now I'm working with couples who are already married and they're, you know, considering divorce or they're going through a really rough time. And I find that I'm beginning to hear the C word all over again. It's just in a different reference. Because now I have a couple who's sitting across from me saying, you know, 
we just made a big mistake, Jonathan. That's what happened. You know, I didn't marry a bad person necessarily. We're just not compatible, you know? We're not a good fit for each other. And it's, you know, Jonathan, here's the problem. See, we just got married too fast. I mean, we just sped through the dating process and we, Jonathan, there were warning signs. There were red flags. There were warning signs and we totally ignored them. We just blew right past them. And here we are, two incompatible people stuck in this marriage. It's not working and we went out. So whether it was before getting married or after getting married, I just learned to fear the compatibility word. Because what I was learning, the more couples I worked with, I was learning that compatibility, at least within our culture, is eclipsing the idea of commitment. Rather than being concerned with a promise, which is, of course, what marriage is, right? It's a promise to be devoted and faithful and loving to that other person for the rest of your life. Rather than a promise, the question is, is this the perfect person for me? Now, now I just let me take a step back. Since, since I'm going to be kind of taking a little bit of a a swipe at compatibility this morning, let me just take a moment and say, there is a type of compatibility that, that I think is very important in, in dating and marriage relationships. If you define compatibility as having shared goals and having the ability to work together, then absolutely, I'm, I'm for that. I think that that is a critical component of a successful romantic relationship, absolutely. And the good news about that is that that is always something that you can work towards. That is not some sort of enduring part of your personality. If you find that you currently don't have shared goals and that you currently struggle to work together, that can be fixed. But I do believe that sort of compatibility is very important. And I'll take you to the scriptures where the Bible tells us that's the case. Amos 3.3 says, can two people walk together without agreeing on the direction? Well, this is a pretty profound verse as it relates to marriage and, and, and shared goals. Because we know in Genesis, when God says it is not good for the man to be alone, which, by the way, is the only time God says in the entire creation account that anything is not good, is when he said it's not good for the man to be alone. He says, I will create a helper who is just right for him. Now, that word helper has two meanings. One meaning is a companion, a person who goes alongside. The other, one is a he the other meaning is a hero, a person who helps you out when you're in trouble. So we know that God says the role of a spouse is to be a companion hero, a person who goes alongside and is there for you. And then Amos says, can two people walk together? Can they be traveling companions on the road of life without agreeing on the direction? And the implied answer is no, you can't. And so shared goals are very important. And as if the Bible's word wasn't enough, research recently has told us that shared goals is one of the most profound elements in a marriage that stays together. So it is important. And then it's especially important as it pertains to belief in God. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Now, I could talk for a while about being unequally yoked in this room. And if you have no church background, it probably wouldn't mean much to you. If you do have a lot of traditional church background, you've probably heard a lot about the idea of being unequally yoked. And you know that what I'm referencing is the idea of a believer marrying an unbeliever. And, and for, but, but, but you have to recognize for Paul, when Paul's writing this, he's talking to a mostly agricultural society, and these are people who had harnessed up a lot of animals. They had put a lot of animals in a yoke, and one thing they completely understood is if you put two incompatible animals in a yoke together, they will fight against each other, and they'll walk around in circles. And so what God is trying to tell us is, in the dating process, if you're a God follower, 
I mean, once you're married, you're committed, but if, if you're a God follower and you're dating someone who's not a God follower, let me just tell you ahead of time, you're gonna pull against that person when you're married and you'll go around in circles. So yeah, I believe shared goals, the ability to work together, those things are important. But that's not what I'm talking about this morning. Because when most people talk about compatibility in relationships, that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about this sappy, cultural, weird idea that has somehow crept into our thinking that, that there is for each person somehow a perfect right person out there somewhere. It's like God, he, he does the whole where's Waldo thing and he takes the person you're supposed to be with and he goes and he puts them out amongst the millions of other people and you're supposed to go out there and find that person and if you do not find the right person and end up with somebody else, well then you've ruined it, right? <laughs> I think this is one of the reasons why uh, online match sites are so popular. And please hear me, I'm not making fun of online match sites. Hey, if that works for you, that's awesome. But I think one of the reasons why they become so popular is because we have sort of bought into this approach. What if I don't find that perfect person for me? I'm a lot more likely to find them if I, if I input all this information into the computer and let the number crunchers do it and let the, the, all the algorithms figure out who that perfect person is for me and then they can produce them for me. Well now, Maybe you're like me and you have a level of skepticism that says, I don't believe that there's just one right person out there for each person. I don't believe that God does the whole where's Waldo approach. But isn't it true that when we were dating, we were looking for as close as we could find to that. We wanted to get as close to perfect fit as we could. It's almost as though it was like we were looking for that puzzle piece that clicked with us. You know how it is when you break out a puzzle and you've got all these different pieces and there's only, the, there's only two pieces that have that perfect fit together and it's like, oh, I'm, I'm going to find that person who's as close to the perfect click as I can find the perfect fit. Well, that's what happened to this couple. Let me introduce you to uh, Bob and Susie. Bob and Susie, let's say they've been married for um, three years and they're having some relationship troubles. They're not getting along and when they fight, they don't understand what they fight about. They have little issues, but they turn into huge conflicts. They um, complain of never feeling good enough for the other person. I don't know if you've ever heard anybody say this, but, but Susie just thinks she's never going to be good enough for Bob. And Bob thinks he's never going to be good enough for Susie. They feel like there's some big pressure source in the relationship that they just can't put their finger on. And they're not exactly sure what it is. Part of it could have to do with the fact that way before Bob ever met Susie, ever started dating Susie, was ever interested in Susie, way before then, he was already in a relationship with another woman. And that's this, this gal over here. Now, she doesn't have a name because she's not a real person. She is just his ideal woman. Now, not his ideal woman for all men. It's not a stereotype in that sense. This is Bob's ideal woman for Bob. This is his picture, mentally, of what the perfect person for him would look like. Now, to be fair, she's changed a little over the years. She was blonde to start with, and she was brunette for a while. She was a redhead one year when he was in college, and now she's blonde again. Depending on what movie or television show Bob happens to be watching at the time, sometimes her features morph to begin to look like the main actress. In, in, in terms of mood, she is always happy. 
She never has a bad day. She loves Bob's family. She really loves Bob's mom. <laughs> Unless he's mad at his parents, in which case she can't stand his mother. <laughs> she is a total cut up when Bob wants to be silly. When Bob wants to be serious, she's serious as a heart attack. She always pays attention to Bob when he wants to do couple stuff. But when he wants some space, she cheers him on as he plays hours of video games or comes home, comes home late after hanging out with his friends. She loves ESPN. <laughs> and she hates Hallmark movies. She and Bob never fight because she realizes Bob is always right. And for Bob, she represents his puzzle piece, his perfect fit, the ideal woman for him. He's been in a relationship with her for a very, very long time. And just because Bob and Susie started dating and got married doesn't mean that she ever left. But then to be fair, Susie's got another guy in the relationship. That's this guy right here. This is her ideal. He represents her puzzle piece. Now, he's devilishly handsome, but not so much that you'd hate him for it. He's sensitive enough to curl up on the couch and watch a nice romantic drama with her, but then again, he's manly enough to fix things and uh, remove the mouse from the mouse trap in the basement. He enjoys talking about the relationship. He loves reading self-help books. <laughs> True story. Vulnerability is the hallmark of his character. He's not weepy, but he's in touch with his emotional side. All of her friends love him, and he loves all of her friends. And secretly, Hallmark movies are his favorite. <laughs> so I want you to keep in mind, when you think about Bob and Susie, and you think about the three years they've had of married life that's been a little rocky up to this point, and they've had some challenges, and they do struggle to get along, I just want you to cut them a little slack because there are four people in their relationship, right? I mean, when they were dating, but when, when Bob was making the choice whether or not to ask Susie out, it was based on his perception of how close is she to her? How, is, is, she, is she close enough to the ideal? Does she match in as many areas as possible? That's how he made the choice whether to ask her out. And, the, and, and when she made the choice whether or not to say yes, she was looking at him and going, how close is he to him? And it, it was a matter of, of how close the ideal. And I don't know if you can see this the way I'm looking at it, but to me it seems like they're already set up for disappointment. Because... She is never going to exceed his expectations when perfection is the ideal. And he is never going to exceed her expectations when perfection is the ideal. And then they get engaged. And during that relationship, during the part of the engagement, the ideals, they factor into every conversation. They become the standards by which the real people are judged. And then Bob and Susie, you know, they decide to get married. They do some wedding preparations, try to get ready for the wedding. But you know, that's stressful. Picking the cake, the invitations, all that stuff is very stressful. And the reason is because the ideals come along 
to every meeting. They come along to the cake tasting. They come along to the invitation designing. They're, they're there. They're heavy in the air. They're a big presence all the time, leading all the way up into the wedding. And then and at the wedding, there's the bride and the groom and the best man and the maid of honor. But between all of them are the ideals. They came to the wedding. And believe me, they were there in the honeymoon. Three years into the relationship, three years into the marriage, the ideals haven't left. They're still there. And please hear me. He is now having an emotional affair with her. And she is having an emotional affair with him. And they don't understand why the marriage isn't working. They don't understand why they don't feel connected, why they don't feel together, why they don't feel close, why they don't feel intimate. They don't get it. And they think maybe it's because they're mismatched, maybe because they were incompatible, maybe they didn't pay enough attention. Maybe, but it's, it's so, so weird that the, 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 the very thing that is pulling them apart, they view as what's wrong in the relationship. Well, you know, what's wrong is that I just didn't wait to find the woman that's more like her. Well, what's wrong is I didn't wait to find the man that's more like him, but it is exactly those two things that are pulling the relationship apart. I have a lot of couples who come into my office and say, I just, we made a mistake. It was a mistake, Jonathan. We just didn't find the right fit. And all that's predicated on the idea that that's what makes a great relationship. But let's challenge that, shall we? Just for the next few moments. Let's take a biblical look. Let's look at what the Bible has to say, what God has to say, and ask the question, is that what makes or breaks a relationship? Is the perfect fit, is that what it's all about? And I want to start by taking you to Matthew chapter 19. Now, in this chapter, what's happening is the Pharisees are coming to ask Jesus a question to try to trap him. And if you, if you read the Gospels and you really want to know how to characterize the Pharisees, what you need to know about them is they are super church people. Now, there are church people, and you've met them, right? And then there are super church people. I mean, they have the cape and everything. And that's the Pharisees. That's, that's, they, they were not about following God. You'll, you'll always know when you're dealing with a Pharisee character because they were not all about following God. They were all about image. They were all about how it looked to be a rule follower in front of other people and to be able to look down their nose at others. So when Jesus came along and Jesus brought God's message of grace, that was not something they were real keen about. And so they were constantly trying to push back against his ministry. And their favorite way of, of doing this, I mean, these were some cerebral guys so their thought was, we'll just trick him. We'll, we'll give him a question that he won't have the answer to. As a matter of fact, if you ever want to know what the questions the Pharisees were most scared of being asked, just look at what they asked Jesus, because they asked him questions they thought there were no good answers for. So when we get to Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees come and ask him a question about a topic that was a very hot-button issue, just as it is today, the topic of divorce. Is it acceptable? When is it acceptable? How does God feel about it? What are the grounds for divorce? And at the time, there were a couple different sects of teachers. So there was one sect of teachers that was teaching the, the scriptural view that um, only, on, uh, only in the case of adultery was it appropriate to, to get a divorce. But there was another couple teachers who were a lot more popular because they were going around teaching. Keep in mind, this is a mostly male-dominated society. So you have these guy teachers teaching a group of men that they could get divorced for basically any reason they felt like. They, 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 they twisted the law in the Old Testament and basically said, hey, you know, if your wife does something you don't like, you can just take out a piece of paper and say, I divorce you, and here's why, and you can hand it to her, and she's got to leave. So, and, and, and to give you an example, 
These guys taught you could divorce your wife if she insulted your mom. You could divorce your wife if she let her hair down in public. You could divorce your wife uh, if she burned the meal. You could, diver- you could divorce your wife if you found a woman more handsome than she, right? Not my words, that's what the source says. So these guys were wildly popular. I mean, this, you know, here's, here's a bunch of guys who are going, well, they're, they're teachers of the scripture, so if they say it, you know, surely God's got to be cool with it. And they, they say, I can get divorced anytime I want to for any reason I want to. So now these Pharisees come to Jesus, and they're going to try to trap him. They're going to say, hey, is it okay for a man to divorce his wife for just any old reason? Because here's the deal. If he says yes, if he says it's okay to get a no-fault divorce under any circumstances, then they can grab the scriptures, and they can take him right to the scriptures and say, well, then why are you contradicting the scripture? But then on the other hand, if he says no, that you can only get divorced in the case of adultery, then who would want to listen to him anymore? Because everybody's going to want to go listen to the, to the popular teachers who, who make it easier. So that's what we see when we get to Matthew 19. The Bible says Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Haven't you read the scriptures? Jesus replied. They record that from the beginning God made them male and female. Which, by the way, I want to just take a, a quick time out and just say, I don't know if this strikes you as weird or strikes me as weird. Here, here, Jesus is God, and God is the designer, not only of marriage, but of human life, but he's certainly the, the designer of, of, of marriage. He instituted it. And to me, to, to ask Jesus about divorce, straight up, you know, this is not like part of a conversation on marriage. This is the question they came to ask. To me, that's like finding the chief architect of the Boeing 777 airplane and saying, I'd like to interview you about the exit door, Right? I mean, the, the, I, I'd like to interview you about the inflatable raft that people go down if the, if the plane crashes. And the guy's going to be like, you do realize we designed this to fly, right? You do realize that the features that I would like to talk about are not the features that we use when things go wrong. So it's interesting to me that when the Pharisees come to, 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 to Jesus, they're not asking how should a marriage work. They're asking about the failure point of marriage. And, and Jesus isn't going to play that game. He says, in case you were wondering, we're going to talk about how marriage is designed to work. And he said, they record from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now look at this verse with me. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. There's something really profound there. The Bible says that when, when, when two people get married, God is going about the business of joining them together. Hmm. I don't deal with this a lot at New Spring, but every once in a while I'll run into a couple who's, who's very fixated and obsessed with the details of their wedding. Now, it's good to want everything to be nice. And, and believe me, I'm all for putting you know, all due diligence into having a wonderful day, and I, I think you should celebrate, have a fantastic wedding. But sometimes I run into people who are so obsessed with the details of the wedding that that becomes everything about it. That becomes the, the eclipsing thing. And I just want to say, the Bible tells us that the most important element of your wedding day is the fact that God is there and God is going about the business of joining you. It's not the way the cake is decorated. It's not the room that you're in. It's not the person that's officiating. None of those things. The most important part of your wedding day is the fact that God is there with you and he is going about the business of joining two lives into one. That's why marriage is so deadly serious. It is serious business because God himself is at work in the middle of it. As a matter of fact, as far as I can tell, 
This is the single direct command I can find from Jesus about marriage. When he says, let no man split apart what God has joined together. And, and by those words, by saying, let no man split apart, it, it, it gives us the idea of intentionally fighting the pulling apart of our relationship. And that's what Bob and Susie have a problem. Because Bob and Susie, they came into this relationship just thinking that, that things were going to work well for them. I mean, they kind of had the, 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 the car wash approach to marriage. Just, you know, sit down, ride in, let it all wash over you, and hope everything works out. They weren't fighting for their relationship. They weren't fighting to stay together. They didn't think about what might come in between them. And then beyond all of that, they certainly thought if something was going to come between them, it would be an actual person. It would be something visible, something they could see and, and anticipate and deal with when it came. They didn't realize that the very thing that was going to try to pull them apart were two states of mind. And yet that is what is pulling them apart. And the Bible tells us this in James. In James chapter 4, starting in verse 1, this is the message paraphrase. The Bible says, where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Literally, the Bible is saying, where do you think these things are coming from that are pulling you apart? Do you think they just happen? Think again. They come about because you want your own way and you fight for it deep inside yourselves. Now, the Bible is saying, hey, do you want to know what's pulling you apart? What's pulling you apart is that you have still chosen to hang on to your image of what you deserve to have. You want to hang on to your own way. It, you won't let go. You won't grieve perfection. You know, it's one of the things we have to teach our kids. It's one of the things we have to teach ourselves is that we live in an imperfect world. And so part of being able to function well in an imperfect world is to let go of the idea of perfection. Grieve it. Have the funeral and walk past it and say, you know what? We live in an imperfect world and perfect isn't going to happen. Unfortunately, Susie is still kind of holding on to the, the perfect image. And Bob is still kind of holding on to the perfect image. And it's splitting them apart. And the Bible says, leave, cling, become one flesh. Fight that, that propensity to split apart. Which, by the way, we live in a world right now where God's instructions for marriage and his outline of marriage is growing more and more unpopular. And there's even some angst and some anger associated with God's plan for marriage. I just want to tell you, I, I don't understand that. You know, if I go buy a digital camera this afternoon at Best Buy and I open up the box and, and there's a manual in there from Canon, I'm not going to call Canon and tell, how, how dare you tell me how to run my own camera? How dare you tell me how this is supposed to be operated? No, well, first of all, I wouldn't do that because, first of all, they designed the camera so they know how it's best supposed to be operated. And I understand the only reason they put that manual in there is because they want me to know how it, is, how it works best. I don't have to read it. But if I don't read it, I run the risk of having major problems with it. And so when God gives us instructions for marriage, which, by the way, are not very complicated, just a few sentences. When God gives us instructions for marriage, he's not doing it because he's trying to be a dictator or force us to work within a really confined space. He's saying, I just want you to know I designed it. I put it together. I know how it works. And this is how it's designed to work. Popular or unpopular, if we believe in God, we have to know that his plan for marriage is the right one. Sometimes we talk about the idea of selfishness. When we think about this idea of our own way pulling us apart, James says it's, our, it's, it's the desire to have our own way. And sometimes we think about the idea of selfishness, but I don't know about you, sometimes there's a little pushback in my spirit against that term. 
because I've grown to think of selfishness as wanting what I want to the expense of others. Like, I don't care about how others feel. I don't care about what's going on with other people. I just want my own way. And I don't feel like that's true of me. And so I tend to push back against the idea that there's, there's a lot of selfishness in my life until I really studied this this week and I had to come to terms with the fact there is a lot of selfishness in my life. What the Bible is talking about in terms of selfishness is our unwillingness to let go of our ideal. It is believing that what I want for me is better than what God wants for me. But please hear me when I say this. As long as Bob is in a relationship with her, they can never truly be intimate. As long as Susie is in a relationship with him, they can never truly be intimate. So here's a question. What if Bob or Susie has an epiphany and they decide, hey, I want to let go of the ideal. I want to move forward and have a successful relationship by accepting the person that God's put in my life. How would you do that? I just want to give you a couple passages here and we'll be done. Here's the first one, and this is about how we change our mindset to accept our spouse and to turn loose of those ideals. Ephesians 5.21, the Bible says, And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another. Now, the, that word submit's kind of been beaten around a lot and been misused from time to time. That word submit simply means this. It simply means to let the other person go first. Put the other, push the other person to the front of the line. It's like when you're in second grade and you tell the other kid to go, you know, you're in line for the water fountain, you tell the other kid, go, you know, you can go first. That's submission. Doesn't mean you don't have rights. Doesn't mean that you're letting yourself be walked on. It doesn't mean that you're not a valuable person. It means that it is your choice, your personal choice, to tell the other person that they can go first. And the Bible says, God's telling us, that in a healthy marriage, you have two people who are each telling each other, go first. And then look what he says. He says we're to do that out of reverence for Christ. So we don't do this for the other person's sake. We do this because we come to that belief. We reverse engineer that process that says what I want for me is better than what God wants for me. And we turn the dial from the shopping mindset to the serving mindset. And we say what God wants for me is better than what I want for me. So I'm going to let the other person go first, not because of them, but because of what God has encouraged me to do. One of the things I really want to communicate when I do premarital classes, I mean, it's, it's really heavy uh, on my mind during the first couple sessions is I want to I say that marriage is not an act of strategic acquisition. It's not a new toy. It's not something that you get. It's not like saying I'm, I'm, I'm getting a new house. I'm getting a new car. I'm getting a spouse. I'm getting a husband or a wife. I'm getting married. It's not a new toy. It is a new job. It is an act of service. It, so many of us, we, we dated with the shopping mindset. Bob dated with the shopping mindset. I've got my shopping cart. I'm looking for the person that is closest to this, and that's the person I'm taking home. But the problem is, if you date with the shopping mindset, you're probably going to be married with the shopping mindset. And at some point, whether it's in your dating life or in your married life, you have to trip the switch that says, now it's not about shopping, it's about serving. That's what the Bible tells us in Ephesians. Marriage, then, is not about what you get from the other person. It's about what you give to the other person. And that's where Bob has a problem. Even though he'd never admit it, he probably never even thought of it this way, his marriage is mostly about two people, him and her. You say, Jonathan, doesn't God want me to be happy? You know, as you're talking about all this, 
I recognize maybe I do have a little bit of an ideal. Maybe it's not quite as clearly formed as what you're talking about here, but maybe I do have a little bit of an ideal. Maybe I haven't let it go. Maybe my marriage is more about me and my ideal than it is about me and my spouse, but Jonathan, doesn't God want me to be happy? Gary Thomas wrote one of the finest books on marriage you can get your hands on. I will warn you ahead of time, if you get Gary's book, it's called Sacred Marriage. It's, um, it can be tough sledding at certain points. Gary's very cerebral, so sometimes you spend quite a while reading a paragraph to make sure you understand what he was saying. But he has one sentence that's just profound in the book. When he says, what if God designed marriage to make you holy instead of happy? What if God wants to teach you something by having you serve your spouse for the rest of your life? I want to read something to you. This is a letter written by a man named J. Robertson McQuilkin. He was the president of Columbia International University for 22 years, a devoted Christian and amazing leader. His wife was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease earlier. It was earlier onset than it is in most cases. And for quite a while, he tried to take care of her and still be president of the school, manage both responsibilities at the same time. But her condition deteriorated very, very quickly. And it came, there came a time where, she, where he realized he was either going to have to quit his job and become her full-time caretaker, or he was going to have to hire somebody to take care of her and go back to his job full-time. And he made the decision to resign. And I want to read to you just some, some excerpts from the letter that he wrote to the college explaining his decision. Recently, it has become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time she is with me, and almost none of the time I am away from her. It is not just discontent. She is filled with fear, even terror, that she has lost me and always goes in search of me when I leave home. So it is clear to me that she needs me now full time. The decision was made, in a way, 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness as in health till death do us part. So, as I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word, Integrity has something to do with it, but so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of her debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic, but there is more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me, her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of that wit that I used to relish so, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration. I don't have to care for her. I get to. It is a high honor to care for so wonderful a person. I read that to you because you don't see that much anymore. The kind of love that makes a marriage last, that makes a marriage inspiring. Were you not inspired to hear his words? I mean, it's, a, it's an inspiration. The kind of marriage that has that quality, it doesn't survive with four people. It's too crowded. It only survives when it's just you and the other person. Two imperfect people willing to accept each other's imperfections. Willing to recognize that that other person will never live up to the ideal. But listen, you will never appreciate your spouse unless you give them the opportunity to exceed your expectations. And you will never give them the opportunity to exceed your expectations if perfection is the goal. And on that note, as we close out our time together this morning, you might be saying, you know, Jonathan, interesting that you put it that way because 
my, my problem with my spouse is not that they have some sort of physical condition. I would certainly be there for them if that was the case. My, my problem is that my spouse has a mental condition. They're a problem child. <laughs> they agitate me like you would not believe. I find myself annoyed so much of the time, and I figure that annoyance is just the incompatibility that you started off talking about. We just aren't a good fit. I mean, you talk about perfect and imperfect. Like, there's perfect here, like this is in one zip code, and then there's a few more zip codes in between, and then my spouse is like over here in this zip code, right? And so if you were to understand how imperfect my spouse was, then you would give me a pass because after all, I mean, you can only put up with so much. Well, let me just go ahead and make the disclaimer. What I'm getting ready to say is not about serial adulterers or abusers. I think there's reasons for the relationship to end when that's the case. But most of us aren't there. Most of us just get a little too agitated. We get a little too annoyed. We're a little too easy to push over the line. And if that's where we are, I want to read you this verse, and we're going to be done. Romans 5, 8, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Look at the context. Not only does the Bible talk about God sending Jesus to die, but look at the context. He says he sent Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. In the face of my profound imperfection, that is when God sent Christ to die for me. I, I guarantee you, I am so far on the other end of perfect. I'm in a zip code on the other side of the map. I'm beyond imperfect, and yet God said, I, you are not so imperfect that I cannot sacrifice for you. And let me tell you something. There is no law of the universe prohibiting God from having an ideal Jonathan. There's no law of the universe that says God could not say, you know what, Jonathan, you are just not what I expected. You've not lived up to my expectations. You've not lived up to what you should be. You're just, you're not even close, Jonathan. Even if you were a little closer, that would be okay. But I can't show love to you because you're just too far from my ideal. But that's not how God operates. And then God says that we're to love each other the same way Christ has loved us. That means that we've got to understand that any relationship I'm in with another human being is going to be an imperfect relationship with two imperfect people. And I've got to accept that and understand it. And more than that, to love God is to say, if God can love an imperfect person like me, I can love an imperfect person like the one I'm in a relationship with. So God says to, to us, if you want to let go of the ideal, put each other first and don't let anything split you apart. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for the fact that you have given us a plan for marriage and dating and relationships. Thank you that it works. Now I ask that you would superintend these next few moments. Heads are still bowed. Eyes are still closed. I just said that Jesus gave up his life on the cross to pay for everything that you've ever done wrong so that you could have a relationship with God. Say, Jonathan, no, I've done things that are too big for that. Nope, not possible. The Bible says that Jesus' blood was a currency that paid for every sin that you have ever committed in the past that you've committed right now or that you will commit in the future. So if you want to have a relationship with God, I'm going to invite you to follow along with this prayer. You can say this silently to God, and it will be settled once and for all. Ready? Here we go. Dear Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you died for me. I know I do wrong things. I'm certainly not ideal. But I believe you gave your life for me. 
I place my trust in you. I accept your free gift of heaven and forgiveness. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, everybody look this way just for a moment. If you just prayed that prayer, you just made, there is no decision in your life bigger than that. And we want to give you a packet of materials to help you get started on the right track in your new relationship with God. So take that talk to us card, check the little box that says, I prayed to receive Christ. Take it back to guest services. They won't ask you any big questions or hassle you. They just want to give you that packet before you leave. Thank you so much for being here with us this week.